Today brings us to the end, not only of our current sermon series on Exodus, but also, in fact, the end of a trilogy of series, which we started a little over a year ago. Our aim throughout this entire project was to develop, or start beginning to develop at least, what we've called an Exodus mindset. And that is because the Exodus story is, as is well known to theologians, the controlling narrative of the entire Bible. Even when it's not directly under discussion, it's constantly in the back of the mind for the Bible writers and for their first audiences, because on it rests the entire Jewish faith. We began last year with the Exodus Express, which was a quick tour of the action-packed first half of the book. Then in our study of Hebrews, we sought to bring some of that Exodus mindset to bear on a portion of the New Testament which discusses many uh, Exodus themes. And so here we are, at last, at the end of Exodus Espresso, our study of the more contemplative second half of the book. The giving of the law at the original Pentecost at Mount Sinai, marked the creation of the nation of Israel, the creation of the nation. As Exodus 19.6 puts it, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 2 Corinthians tells us that we are supposed to be the aroma of Christ to God in this world. And the theme that we've been trying to tease out from the post-Sinai half of the Exodus uh, story is what exactly the people of God are supposed to be like. And this has not, of course, been an exhaustive study. Uh, It gets developed throughout the rest of the Bible. But what we find here is what we've called seven flavors of the people of God. Exodus 20 to 40 is not the last word on the subject, but it's perhaps as good a foundation as any on which to build our understanding of the kind of people God would like us to become. The first flavor from chapters 20 to 23 was a people of holiness. It was a reading that challenged our ideas of what true holiness really is, with this extreme emphasis on simply treating people right, with right worship and obedience to God tagged on almost like an afterthought at the end. Then we looked at chapter 24 with its extraordinary meeting between God and the 70 elders, a people of God's presence, seeing him, sharing our life with him, transformed by him. Thirdly, in chapters 25 to 30, we saw the pattern of the tabernacle, a people of heaven come to earth. And we noted in particular that humanity is invited to construct God's dwelling place on earth for him, and that at its center is his law covered over with his mercy seat. Then as we cast a meditative eye um, in our imagination around the tabernacle, we saw an incredible richness of detail which all speaks of our relationship with our creator and Lord. In the fourth talk, we concentrated on just 11 verses from chapter 31, which introduced the central character of this huge chunk that follows, Bezalel, a man filled with God's spirit. He was to be the chief artisan in the whole construction process, worked out in five of the last six chapters. So the fourth essential characteristic of God's people surely is that we have to be a people of God's spirit. And as with holiness, as we looked into it, we found it didn't mean at all what the average Christian thinks it does. Next came an examination beginning at 31, uh, 13 to 17, of a theme which is repeated often throughout the whole of Exodus, a people of Sabbath rest. 
I love the way that Jason deliberately avoided the sort of nitpicking legalism that normally um, uh, characterizes any discussion of the Sabbath. As you'll remember, he concentrated instead on what the Sabbath really means in an Exodus mindset. God's invitation to ordinary human beings to enter into his divine rest, the rest that a God takes when he's defeated all his foes and finished his creative work. Then last week in chapters 32 to 34, Kirsty led us through the sixth flavor of God's people. That is a covenant people. People who stick to what we've agreed with God, no matter how long it takes to get there. And whatever anyone else might be doing. People who have been changed from the inside out. Well, that just leaves us six chapters to deal with this morning. So buckle up. But in fact, most of those chapters simply repeat almost word for word the plan that God showed Moses in chapters 25 to 30. The only difference between the two passages is where the first one repeatedly says, you shall make. The second says, and he made. And it's worth mentioning that the he in and he made is deliberately undefined. It's clearly Moses, isn't it? But it's through the agency of Bezalel. So it's clearly Bezalel, isn't it? It's Bezalel through the agency of Aholiab, and it's clearly through the agency of all the other people who are doing it. One might almost say, as is so often the case in the Bible, that Israel the nation is being spoken of as Israel the person. One person who does, in the oft-repeated phrase, exactly as God commanded Moses. So I don't want to look at any of those construction details again this morning. Instead, I just want to read a chunk of chapter 35 for what it tells us about God's people. And then finish with a few verses of chapters 39 and 40, which tell the end of the story. Without much further ado then, let's read Exodus 35, starting at verse 4. But three tiny little notes before we do. One... For reasons I shall explain later, I've often substituted the, uh, the words skilled and skill, I've substituted them out and replaced them with the more literal translation, wise-hearted and wise-heart. Two, I've cut some of the long lists for reasons only of brevity. I don't mean any disrespect to the text. Three, verses one to three contain yet another instruction relating to the Sabbath. So we can take it as read that even through this vital building work, the Sabbath was observed throughout. And it's at least interesting to note that all these commands to work, which we find five chapters of them, begin with a command to rest. All taking note? Perhaps. So Exodus 35, verse 4. It will help if you've got your own Bible with you, because I'm going to leap about a little bit, and the uh, wonders of the screen via Catherine might not manage to keep up. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever's of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Then there follows a long list of all the necessary building materials. Verse 10. Let every wise-hearted man among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, and everything else in the plan that God gave Moses. Picking up again at verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came 
everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every wise-hearted woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and in fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought all the other stuff that was needed, verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom of heart, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to divine artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work, in every wise-hearted craft. And he's inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with a wise heart to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroidery in blue and purple and scarlet yarns of fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. <coughs> Well, the first thing I see in, in these verses is that God wants a people of the heart. You can't be a Christian very long before you hear the phrase, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And personally, I used to assume for quite a long time that that must be a New Testament saying. But in fact, it's not. It comes in 1 Samuel 16, where God is specifically rejecting King Saul, who looks every inch of the king, but didn't actually measure up in God's eyes, and appointing instead the unlikely figure of a shepherd boy, David, a man after his own heart, as he's described in 1 Samuel 13, 14. Now, to work this out, you don't need to be smart. In fact, it's been clear from the very start, God doesn't want a people who just look the part. He wants a people who live from the heart. Where's my backing track? (laughs) Exodus 35 speaks of generous hearts, Wise hearts, stirred hearts, willing hearts, and hearts of people moved to act. So I deliberately exchange that rather prosaic word skill, which you find in most modern translations, for the more flowery wise heart of the King James Version, of my beloved Revised Version, and of Young's literal translation. And I did it firstly because as far as I can work out, stand to be corrected, This is where the Hebrew word started out. But secondly, I did it because this is surely, above everything else, a chapter of the heart. When I looked it up in the indispensable Vines expository dictionary of New and Old Testament words, I found that the Hebrew word rendered skill in the ESV principally means wisdom 
gained by application and experience. Wisdom gained by application and experience. It signifies, to quote directly, an important element in the Old Testament Testament religious point of view. Religious experience was not a routine, a ritual, or a faith experience. It was viewed as a mastery of the art of living in accordance with God's expectations. In their definition, the words mastery and art signify that wisdom was a process of attainment and not an accomplishment. The secular usage bears out the importance of these observations. So all that being the case, especially in the overall context of this chapter, it seemed right to prefer the old-fashioned wise heart to that sort of Ikea stripped-down, simple, modern translation skill. Because even if we didn't, this would still be a chapter about the heart. Verse 5, whoever is of a generous heart... Verse 21, everyone whose heart stirred him. Verse 22, all who are of a willing heart. Verse 26, all the women whose hearts stirred them. Verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart stirred them. The principle of living outwards from the heart is amply expanded in the teachers of Jesus. He often says things like, by their fruit shall you know them. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth good things. The evil man... Not so much. It's not what goes into the person that defiles him, but what comes out of the person. He calls the Pharisees whited sepulchres. You know, they're painted white on the outside, but inside they're full of rotting corpses. And we could go on. You can't produce good actions unless they spring from a good heart, from your inner nature. And this is why, as we saw, cunningly tying it back into Hebrews, In Hebrews 8, verse 10, quoting Jeremiah 31, that in God's covenant, under which we now live in Christ, God writes his laws not on tablets of stone to be hidden away under a golden mercy seat, but on our very hearts. Back in Exodus, as in Jesus' time, as in our own day, God has always been looking for people who don't just obey his law mechanically because that's the deal. He's looking for people who live and love, and obey him from the heart. Secondly, God wants a wise-hearted people. It's not enough merely to live from the heart like some ultra-spontaneous nutter. We have to learn to live from a wise heart. Jesus brings this point out clearly in Matthew 7, in his parable about the wise and foolish builders, as you probably remember. The foolish man who built his his house on the sand, and it fell down when the storms came, is the one who heard Jesus' teaching, but never got round to living it out. The wise man who built his house on the rock, and it stood when when the floods and tempests came, is the one who put Jesus' teachings into practice in his life. And if, like me, you've ever tried to do that, you'll know that it doesn't come naturally at least to start with. The point in the Exodus mindset, in the Hebrew understanding of what is wisdom, as we just read from Vine's Dictionary, is that if we are wise-hearted, then we will have attained mastery of the art of living right before God. Putting this in terms that we read in Hebrews, if we are the mature people of Hebrews 5.14, it says, have our senses trained by practice to discern good and evil, then for us, doing right will have become second nature. 
We will, in short, have become precisely the covenant people Kirsty was talking about last week. We'll be people who instinctively do the right thing, the brave, the generous thing, and who turn in uh, incomprehension from the wrong, the easy, the selfish course of action. We'll be the kind of people who, in Exodus 35, give their belongings to the offering and themselves to the work. So I guess I've cheated slightly in transposing this concept of the wise-hearted person from the artisan, the skilled artisan, builder, weaver, etc., to every person who lives wisely before God. But I hope you can see why I did it. In verses 30 to 35, we read of Bezalel and co., as we also saw a few weeks back, that God has filled them with his spirit and the wise-hearted skills necessary to do the work that he has set before them. And this exposes a vital principle of the Christian life. Because even though God has filled them with his spirit, to the Exodus mindset, the skill, the wise heart, which we're talking about today, still requires experience, practice, and doubtless many failures along the way. In the vineyard, we often express this in a phrase much beloved of John Wimber, which is, the Holy Spirit is not opposed to human effort. One of the big problems, practically speaking, when we expect the Spirit to make us perfect right away, is that when we fail, we're prone to give up. Our failure seems inexplicable. We've repented, haven't we? Haven't we committed our lives to God, been filled with the Spirit, and now we sinned? What went wrong? If we have no theology for this, we're prone to go back and back and back to the very beginning, again and again and again, all our life long having learned nothing. But as Jesse so memorably pointed out in his talk in the early chapters of Exodus last year, God doesn't save us into the promised land. He saves us into the wilderness that leads to the promised land. The true disciple, like the twelve throughout their three years with Jesus, is committed to trying and failing and learning from each failure. So we're not supposed to go right back to square one in some sort of heavenly game of snakes and ladders every time we hit square sin and down the snake we go. No, we're supposed to look at our dropped stitches, our botched engraving, our ruined wood turning, and like good apprentices, learn from our mistakes. And notice in verse 34, Bezalel and co., the wise-hearted ones, who are also inspired to teach others. If we want to become wise-hearted, we need to learn from those who've already got there. That's the whole discipleship principle. The trouble is, most of us just want to be disciples of Jesus directly, but that is not the way he set things up. One of the major principles that we've learned from this whole study of Exodus is that to put it in a soundbite, God's plan is a man or woman. And as we saw a few weeks ago in our study of 2 Corinthians 5, God has entrusted the whole of his ministry of reconciliation to human beings. In the Great Commission, what did Jesus send his disciples out to do? To make disciples, teaching them to do everything that he commanded them, including making disciples. I've often heard it said that our job is to make disciples of Jesus, not disciples of me not disciples of Carol, not disciples of anyone else in the room. And up to a point, it's a good point. 
But wise as it sounds, I very much doubt that's the way the disciples understood this last instruction from Jesus, their master. Like every rabbi, Jesus' clear aim, as you can read in Matthew 10, 24, was that his disciples should become like their master. The job of a disciple is to become wise-hearted enough that they can become a rabbi one day to other disciples. St. Paul didn't say, don't do what I do, do what I say. He said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So if we want to learn to be wise-hearted, we're going to have to learn from others who, like the rabbis of old, walked a little bit ahead of us on the road, the road to wisdom. And it's not good enough either for those who are wise-hearted to say, don't follow me, follow Jesus. If you're genuinely following Jesus yourself, you should definitely be encouraging others to follow you. You're going somehow good, aren't you? Don't you want others to come with you? God is looking for a people of the heart. He's looking for wise-hearted people, for people who want to become wise-hearted. But I think this chapter also says five other things about the heart, which I'm going to touch on just briefly before we end, though each one probably merits a sermon in its own right. Point three. God is looking for a generous-hearted people. Verse five. The tabernacle, that visible representation of heaven on earth, wasn't just magicked up out of nowhere, nor was it built from enforced offerings grabbed from the grasp of a grudging people. God had the wise-hearted build it out of the willing offerings of the generous-hearted. And it seems to me that's precisely the way the unchanging God builds his church and his kingdom to this very day. Everyone gets to play if his heart is right. A grudging people always look for things to be done in the way they want before they chip in. They're the armchair experts forever saying the church ought to. But they themselves, we notice, aren't wise-hearted enough to put their hand to the plough or generous-hearted enough to put their hand in their pocket. They're not the kind of people that I'd want to follow on the road to wisdom. A generous-hearted people don't say much at all. Like Israel of old, chapter 20, um, verses 20 to 29, they simply hear what's needed, then they go straight back to their tents and bring whatever they have. God's looking for generous-hearted people. Point four, God is looking for people whose hearts stir them, verses 21 and 29. In the vineyard, we're not fans of emotionalism or hype, but we aren't dead from the neck down any more than the psalmists were. We engage heart as well as mind in our worship. But you might have noticed that afterwards, as we take up the offering, we sit down and listen to the notices. It just cools things down a bit, doesn't it? We want to be led by God's Spirit, willingly obeying with our minds, not merely carried away on a wave of emotion. But a healthy distrust of emotionalism shouldn't lead us to a blanket distrust of emotion. In a university town like this, there can be a a tendency to live too much in our heads and not enough in our hearts. Perhaps we need to remind ourselves of these verses from time to time. God builds his kingdom through people whose hearts stir them and whose spirits move them. When Jesus said, Matthew 6, verse 3, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right is doing, I don't think he was counseling us to become irresponsible. 
I think it's just pointing out that sometimes if we stop to think too long about what we're doing, we won't do it at all. Sometimes our heart and spirit must be allowed to move us. Because our head, I think, at least mine does, will always try and put the brakes on. It tends towards self-preservation. There's that armchair expert in all of us, ready at all times to step in and give us several good reasons why it's not worth getting involved. When our heart is moved by what we see and hear, do we allow our heart to move us? Or does our head just put the brakes on so we end up stuck exactly where we are? God is looking for generous-hearted people whose hearts are allowed to move them to action. Point five, God is looking for men and women of a willing heart. The will, the decision-making part of us should be guided by the heart as well as by the head. And it's worth noticing that this verse specifically refers to both men and women. It is unusual in that patriarchal society. Women would seldom have made their own decisions about giving stuff away, but they certainly did here. Their hearts were moved and they made their own decision apparently without submitting it to their husbands at all. Now, of course, in our society, the submissive wife is less of an issue than it probably was for them. It certainly is in our household. Thank you. Thank you. Though, if you are married to an unbeliever, perhaps some elements of the same way of thinking remain. Well, I certainly know that some students feel that they need to restrict their generosity to boundaries which are set not by them, but by their parents. And certainly, we need to respect our parents. But there's sometimes a place for just following your willing heart. Not stopping to ask questions. And here, if you read on, it becomes apparent that anyone who had anything required for the tabernacle just turned out to have a willing heart. As we saw last week, the main reason that these same people who got involved with the whole golden calf fiasco was probably nothing more than impatience. Impatience to see some tangible form for God. Impatience led, as it often does, to a foolishly misdirected outworking of a valid impulse. Now that God has delivered the plan for the visible temple of their God and the call to get involved, they respond with generosity and willingness. uh, And they do it immediately. A wise heart is a willing heart, a generous heart, a heart that moves us to act. Now we really are on the last page, okay? Six and seven. Six, wise-hearted people finish the job. Chapter 39, verse 42. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. And in these two rather repetitious verses, you can almost sense Moses' wonder as he looks over the completed work and finds it all exactly as God commanded him in the mountain. Wise-hearted givers and wise-hearted weavers and carpenters and metal workers and craftsmen had all combined to produce exactly what God wanted. It was a communal effort where every person did their bit according to their ability and the way their hearts had moved them. Isn't that exactly how the unchanging God wants to build his kingdom to this very day? 
Isn't that exactly what St. Paul means in, in both 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12, when he talks about the church as a body with different parts, each one doing their bit, not worrying too much about what anyone else is doing. The givers gave, the builders built, and the weavers, as we might say, got weaving. Critics abound in our society. Because it's much easier to criticize the way someone else is doing their job than it is to get on and do our own. I don't think social media is helpful in this regard. Speaking personally, I'd rather build something. If a wise-hearted people allow their hearts to move them to action, they'll forget what anyone else is doing and just get on with the task that God has set before them. And together, they will finish the job. Seventh, and this really is the end. God moves in with wise-hearted people. God moves in with wise-hearted people. Chapter 40, from the end of verse 33. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys... Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by fire, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now that's not quite the end of the Exodus story into the promised land. But it is the end of the book, and it's the end of our look at Exodus Espresso, Seven Flavors of the People of God. The scripture never tires of telling us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what better place to end our consideration of an Exodus mindset than with these few simple thoughts on becoming a wise-hearted people? Why don't you stand and I'll pray?